greetings and salutations, Life Church and visitors of Life Church. So, if you're a visitor here, as Phil said, my name is Nathan. Usually I'm the one who moderates the sound, but occasionally Phil allows me to make sound as well. And uh, today, we're, like he said, we're concluding the series that we've been going through for about three weeks now called The Daniel Dilemma. Kind of the central question that we've been talking about is the idea of, is it possible to love well and stand firm in our culture and make a difference? Before we start, if you'll look inside your worship guide, if you're the kind that likes to take notes, there is a note page inside your worship guide where you can follow along with the PowerPoint and the rest of the notes of the sermon. So, when I first started looking at this text, I I sat down... And I thought, okay, well, the idea of the text is pretty simple, right? Like, he, I'm pre, Phil preached on standing firm. I'm supposed to preach on loving well. All right, I can do this. So I sat down, and then I, as I continued to read, I thought, I need to start with the definition of love, right? Like, I need to know how to define love. And so I sat down, I started thinking about it, and I realized that I couldn't actually define love because everyone has their own definition for what love is. I mean, we all know it's super important. Uh, Galatians 5, 6 talks about how the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. Sounds like it's a pretty important thing, right? It's the only thing that counts. Uh, the, another verse, John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That even knocks it up a notch. Like The way that we will know that you are Christian is by how you love other people. It's by how you love each other. Super important, right? right? Super crucial. But then we start trying to look at love. And we ask ourselves the question, what really is love? I, I looked up love in the dictionary and found 47 different synonyms for how people say love, the same word, in a different way. We have 47 different words that we can use to replace with the word love. And then there's all of our different phrases. Uh, we have true love. Love, true love, is what brings us together today. We have true love. Uh, We have make love. We have all you need is love. Love conquers all. And that could mean one of two things, depending on what kind of person you are. It could mean two people who love each other, coming together, can overcome any obstacle. Or it could be one person who really loves another person will conquer that other person, whether they want it to or not, depending on what kind of person you are. And then one of the worst ones that we possibly could hear, I used to love you but I don't love you anymore. All these phrases, all using the same word, all kind of meaning different things and tell us different stuff about love. For thousands of years, people have been writing about love and what they think love is, all the way from uh, sonnets, Shakespeare, up into the modern age of chick flicks, where people who either hate each other at the beginning or don't know each other at all, wind up madly in love with each other in four days. We have Disney movies where children 
from very young age are learning what they think love is based on what they see the prince and the princess experience in the story. We have romance novels. We have pastors, churches who talk about what it means to love, activists who say we should love each other. The only thing that's important is love. And every person is using this word love. What does it mean? What does it mean to love well? And so we, we count... I came to the central question. Like, the central question of this message, the series was supposed to be, how do I stand firm and love well so that I can change culture? And yet I found myself asking, what even is love? And so we're going to go to the Bible. It's a good place to start, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, it's kind of like the love chapter, right? We hear it talked about all the time. This is what love is. It's in this chapter. But then I was thinking about changing culture, affecting culture, right? Because that's what we're talking about in these past few weeks. And I thought, you know, how does love actually change culture? I don't see a lot of culture changing things in this chapter 13. I see more culture changing things in chapter 12, right? Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. The last part is talking about spiritual gifts. You know, like the gifts that we have as Christians. And it says, now you are the body of Christ. Also, really quick, I'm using the ESV. Most of your verses up here will be the NIV. Don't allow that to confuse you. It's all still the word of God. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. These gifts are the things we would think would change culture, right? People who speak. People who do miracles. People who can make things happen. They're administrators. They have all these gifts. These are the people who change culture. But at the end of chapter 12, Paul kind of drops a bomb on us, right? And he says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. Something that's a little bit higher than all these gifts. Something a little bit more important. It's more excellent. And so he goes, and then he steps into chapter 13. First verse says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, all I say is ineffective. Without love, all I say is ineffective. If you could think about the most eloquent person you know, the best speaker, he or she knows exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it. They know how to lower their voice create tension. They know how to um, raise their voice at times where they want to emphasize a point, and they get people all stirred up, and they know how to affect people's emotions. But if they do not know love, if they do not have love, all that they said, in God's eyes, it's nothing. 
It goes on to say, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. We're talking about the word all here. Could you imagine knowing everything that there is to know? You know when certain things are going to happen. How if you do this one thing, this other thing's going to happen. You know all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the ideas that there are to know in the world. You know them. You not just know them, but you understand them. Because believe me, there's a difference between knowing something and understanding something. You know physics when you go and work on the test if you want to get a good grade, but that doesn't mean you understand physics. Imagine knowing and understanding everything that there is to know and understand in the world. That would be an impactful gift, right? And yet, Paul says, if you know all of that, all you know is insignificant if you do not have love. Okay, so, so what else, Paul? What else? And he, sa- he goes on. He says, uh, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, this faith, it's not, it's not just like I believe really hard and now I can make this mountain move. This faith has a source. It's actually talked about. Jesus talks about it. He had just come down from the mount, a mountain, and he had healed a demon-possessed person. And this demon-possessed person, his disciples couldn't heal that person. And so the disciples asked him, why couldn't we cast out the demon? What was wrong with what we did? Uh, and Jesus says, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The same story, different gospel, same story. We just get more information. We hear that text said, he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, mountain moving faith is a result of prayer devotion. And so when Paul is talking about this faith that can move a mountain, he's not just saying this person believes really hard. He's saying this person's a person of prayer. This person gets up every morning and talks to God. This person talks to God throughout the day. This person is a prayer warrior. But if you are a prayer warrior and you have faith so strong that you could look at a mountain and say, move, and it does, you don't have faith, you don't have love, means nothing means nothing without love all I give is incomplete he goes on talking he says if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing imagine selling all you have for somebody else surely that's love right selling everything so that somebody else will have something to wear Selling everything so that somebody else will have something to eat. Selling everything so that somebody will have some place to live. That's love, right? And yet Paul says, you can do that and not have love. So Paul, what is love? But he still continues talking. We're asking ourselves, what is, what is love, Paul? If all these things aren't love, what is love? But he just keeps talking. And he goes on and he says, Without love, all I sacrifice is inadequate. He says, if I deliver up my body to be burned, 
and have not love, I gain nothing. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, the time generally, the year was AD 55. The emperor of Rome at the time was a man by the name of Nero. Nero had found a way to pin a fire that happened in the capital city of Rome on the Christian faith. And so he had gotten the support of the people, and he began what was known as one of the most fierce persecutions of Christianity that had existed up to that time. And one of the things that he would do is he would take Christian believers, cover them in pitch, hang them on poles, and burn them in his garden as torches. This had a very real meaning for these people. It was their lives. It was their martyrdom. And yet Paul's looking at them and saying, you could be a martyr. And if you don't have love, you're nothing. Paul, come on, man. Come on. Surely all these things should show some kind of love and devotion, right? Surely it should have some kind of impact. These are things that people say, this is the ultimate stand. Martyrdom, the ultimate stand against a culture that is anti-God. And yet he's saying without love, it's nothing. And then he begins to talk to us about what love is. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is a spirit. Love is a spirit. And so, we step into our passage today, Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. And we're going to see how Daniel lived out that kind of love and how it changed his culture. You see, in Daniel chapter 6, we find Darius kind of at a crossroads in his life. He's seeing Daniel, and he recognizes Daniel's a sharp guy. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what this country needs. And so we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So Daniel was at the top of the pillar, right? He's one of the three. Everyone else was underneath him. They answered to him and two other people. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. But they could then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so we see these, these satraps and these officials are like, the king loves this guy so much that he's going to put him over everything 
This one guy. And so they start trying to find a way to, to keep their positions by discrediting Daniel. But the more they look into Daniel's life and they realize this guy has an impeachable character. This guy can't be caught up. He has no skeletons in his closet. He has no bad habits. There is nothing that we can use against this guy to discredit him before the king. And so they were thinking, they said, the only thing we can do is we can trip him up with his own faith. And so they go to Darius. And they say, Darius, there are people who are standing against you. They're planning an an insurrection. They're planning a rebellion. And Daniel, and um, and so they say to Darius, Darius, what you should do is you should make a decree. And the decree should state that the only person who can be worshipped throughout this entire kingdom is you. You are the only one who should receive honor. You're the only one who people should bow down before. And so Darius, Darius signs the decree. Now the question here is, where was Daniel? Darius wanted to set Daniel above all the officials. And yet Darius didn't, didn't talk to Daniel about this new decree he was going to sign. Darius knew what Daniel would say. Darius knew that Daniel, who Daniel was, and that he was going to stand against this decree. But De- this is something Darius really wanted. So he didn't talk to Daniel, didn't tell Daniel what was going on. He just signed the decree, not thinking about what effect that might have. So Daniel hears about the decree, and he goes and he prays. He prays, gets caught, gets taken before the king. The king is frustrated, he's sad, he's angry. But he has no choice, so he sentences Daniel to the lion's den. Famous story in all Christianity, right? Common story. Here's the thing. It does not say that Daniel said a word. Not when he heard about the decree. He probably could have said a few things. Not when he was arrested. Not when he was sentenced. Didn't say a word. In fact, the first words that we hear from Daniel or when Darius runs to the den the next morning and he bangs on the door and he says, Daniel, are you still alive? Has God delivered you? And the first words out of Daniel's mouth are, O king, live forever. The first words out of Daniel's mouth are forgiveness. The first words out of Daniel's mouth are love. Live forever, king. God's delivered me. I'm okay. The thing that set Daniel apart was not what he said. It's what he did. His actions defined who he was. He lived a different life that softened the blow of rebuke that his life proclaimed. People knew he was different because his spirit was different. His actions were the key to his stand. So when we're talking about what it means to love well, to stand firm, to make a difference, we're talking about how our actions, not what we say, but what we do, gets people to think differently about the way that they live. And so for our first point, what can you do? When you leave this church, and we all have to, we love coming together as brothers and sisters, but we can't stay here. 
God has given us a commission to be salt and light in our world. We have to go back out. But what can we do to bring honor and glory to God when we walk out of those doors? Here are some things that we can do as brothers and sisters to magnify our God. First, we can serve the people around us. We can serve them. I think that sometimes we get to the Gospels and we talk about how Jesus made a stand against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we forget that he didn't make the stand until he had lived among them for 30 years. Jesus had lived life alongside these people for 30 years. He worked just like them. He sweated just like them. Got sick just like them. Got tired, got hungry. Just like the people who were around him. He had grown up in a system of corruption and hate and law without grace. And before he said a word, he connected for 30 years with these people. And then when he, so when he finally did say something, these people knew that he was one of them. They hated what he said, despised what he said, crucified him for what he said. But of all the accusations that were ever brought before Jesus, no one ever said that Jesus didn't love people. Because people knew that Jesus loved people. Because he had been at their funerals. Because he had watched them grieve. Because he had been there through it all. In Mark 10.45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came for the purpose of serving. So what can we do to serve those around us? You know, it doesn't have to really be a big thing. We think it does. We say to ourselves, I can't do anything because we're not able to do the big things. It doesn't have to be big. It could be something as small as a cup of coffee. It could be something as small as just saying hi, asking how somebody's doing. You know, lately I've kind of found myself in a position where I feel like I'm grinding my gears, grinding my wheels all the time. I've just graduated from college. I'm trying to work out my job, work out my life at the church, work out being a new husband and figuring all of that out. It's crazy sometimes. And I find myself just wondering, like, what am I doing? I'm doing all these things, but I'm not affecting anybody. I'm not changing anybody. And then there was a process like one week where I had two different people come to me and they said, you know what I like about you? And when somebody says that, you're like, okay. We're going to see what they say now. You know what I like about you? You always ask me how I'm doing, and you always say hi. Small. Really small. And yet we hear stories of people on their way to the Golden Gate Bridge, ready to end it all, who have told us, if someone would have just said hi, I would have stopped. I would have gone back home. If someone would have just acknowledged my existence, I would have turned right around and gone back home. 
It's a small thing, but it is a service to somebody. Think about the small things. Serve them. It makes an impact. And secondly, set an example for them. Ask yourself this question. How does your faith affect your life? How does what you believe as a Christian change the way that you live? Now, let me clarify. I'm not talking about good character because there are thousands of people out there who don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, aren't believers, and yet they are amazing people of character. I have a few in my family. And it's hard to talk to them because they see themselves as so good. And they haven't seen enough people that are different to make them want Christ. Because they say, if Jesus is just about being good, I am already good. What sets you apart from me? That is a question to think about, isn't it? Like, what does set us apart from the rest of the world? What are the habits in your life that are distinctively Christian that affect the way you live? How does what you do identify yourself as a Christian and make it easier for you to smile when everybody seems to be out to get you? How does what you do as a Christian make it easier for you to stand up when everybody else is like, how are you still keeping moving? All these things are happening in your life and you're still going forward. How is what you're doing as a Christian helping you live a more excellent life and be in the more excellent way? I had an experience last year that I had to step back and think about how my faith affected my life. And it was difficult for me because it wasn't even a Christian that reminded me to think this way. It was one of my Muslim friends. Uh, I, had, I was hanging out with my friends in Indiana, me and Sarah, where we were at dinner. And this family that we were hanging out with is interesting because the husband's from India. He came to the United States a couple of years back. But the wife is, grew up in Indiana, and she is a... Muslim convert from Christianity. And so she, so she is now a follower of Islam, and she was talking about how her faith changed her life, changed the way she views what she does. How when she walks into a dark room, she can pray to Allah, and he brings her peace. How throughout the day she's praying, and it changes her attitude Throughout the day, she lives according to a certain standard, and it changes who she is. A change that she didn't see when she was growing up in a Christian home. That's tough. That was tough for me to embrace because I had to ask myself, what are the distinctive Christian things that I am doing that makes other people see that Christ is great? And so that's the question I ask for you. What is the example of distinctive Christian life that you are living 
that helps people see that God is great. In 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, it says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You show yourselves, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You will not find many people who will ever crack open the Bible and read it. Just won't. We live in an age where everybody's on their phone, everybody's busy. But I guarantee you that there is somebody tomorrow, somebody today, somebody yesterday, who read and is reading your life. And the life that you are living, the life that I am living, the life that we live together as a church, that is saying something about our God. What is it saying? What is it saying? Set an example for them. And when we do these things, when we serve others, when we live a distinctive standard of Christianity that helps people see these folks are different, now we can share Christ. We can share Christ with those around us. The Bible talks in First Peter three fifteen through sixteen. It says, "But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander." When people come to you. And they look at your life. And they see you smile after you're ripped apart in that board meeting. And they see you write an encouraging letter or email to that person that is going through a hard time and it's causing them to act and react in ways that have hurt you badly when they see you stay with family and love family, even when that family continues to betray you time and time and time again. And they look at you and they scratch their heads and they say, what makes you different? And then we can look at them and we can say, it's Jesus. It is Jesus' love in me, flowing out of me to somebody else. And like Daniel, we can now proclaim words of forgiveness because they looked at us and our actions, not our words, but our actions, and they said, wow, you're different. We are living in an age where It is not uncommon to see people standing firm 
We see it all the time on social media. People are standing up for something, anything. They're pitching in and all sorts of conversations on social media. They're going in protest rallies. The popular thing, especially for my generation now, is to be actively involved in social reform. Everybody's standing for something. That's not bad. Please don't misunderstand me. We need that. But if you're looking to make an impact that people will notice, standing firm isn't the thing that's going to cut it because it doesn't make you distinctive anymore because everybody's doing it. This is what's going to make you distinctive. You living a life of love. And then at the moment where they see you living that life, and they go to you and they ask, what makes you different? You say, it was Jesus. It was Christ. I think we've all been at that place probably multiple times in our lives where we kind of felt like we were at the bottom. We were at the bottom of the gutter. We were struggling with addiction, maybe. We were having trouble with our family. We were feeling feelings of guilt. We were struggling with depression. And we said, who can love me here? And then Jesus said, I can love you there. I can touch you there. In fact, that's where I want to touch you, at your lowest point. When no one else will even look at you, I'll touch you there. And I'll show you love. And now that I've shown you love, let me flow through you. And you can show that kind of amazing, self-sacrificing love to others. That is how we stand firm and make an impact at the same time. At the same time. How I act is more important than what I say. How I act is more important than what I say. In conclusion, I would like to say that engaging with God's love enables us to activate our own love for others. It is not a mistake that we see Daniel in this time of being totally blindsided, honestly, by what, by what Darius did. And we see Daniel still respond with grace and to see that coupled with prayer. It's not a mistake. It's because as we engage with God, and allow God to flow through us, we can have that kind of love for others. In this new month that's coming up, 21 days of prayer, it's key. It's important. It is through engaging with our God that we learn how to love. So if we can have the band come up here. In conclusion, I'd just like to ask you, What will you do tomorrow that will set you apart as a distinctive Christian? What will you do tomorrow to serve somebody else? And here's my challenge to you. Do something, A, that is distinctively something a follower of Christ would do. And B, do something to serve somebody 
in which you don't say a thing about Christ except to say, Jesus loves you. And as you live the kind of life, of your life being the way you stand, you may be surprised by the impact you have. Thank you all. Thank you, Nathan, for bringing us a word this morning. Thank you, Nathan.